Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland. I'm your host. Our guest today is Dr. Holly Richmond. She is a somatic psychotherapist, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and a certified sex therapist with an expertise in the recovery of sexual trauma. She sits on the clinical board of directors for Dame Products and is the associate director of Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. This unique combination of credentials enables her to focus on clients' cognitive processes as well as mind-body health. In addition to teaching numerous sexual health-related subjects, she works with women, men, couples, and gender-diverse individuals on relationship and sexuality issues offering sex therapy and sexual health coaching nationally and internationally. And her book, Reclaiming Pleasure, A Sex-Positive Guide to Moving Past Sexual Trauma and Living a Passionate Life, is an innovative look at both somatic and psychological factors in survivors' erotic recovery. And each interlinked facet of her work is grounded in a sex-positive perspective. This non-judgmental position allows her to assist clients in discovering their true needs, desires, and personal path to wellness. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Richmond. Really knowledgeable about somatic work, the body, trauma, how it manifests itself, and how it connects to our sexuality, and how we can overcome that and live a life that is true to ourselves and really as she says, a personal path to our own wellness. So I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. And don't forget, if you are getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That means a lot to me. It helps the podcast get found and I just really appreciate it. And you can follow us on Instagram at the Addicted Mind podcast. All right, everyone, stay tuned for this episode. A quick note before we start this episode. In this episode, we talk explicitly about sexual trauma. And so if that is something you're struggling with, please practice self-care and discernment before listening to this episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I think I have a great guest today. Dr. Holly Richmond, who is a somatic psychotherapist, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and a certified sex therapist. And we're going to talk about today 
recovery of sexual health after sexual trauma. And I, as we were kind of talking earlier, I think that is such an important topic because that trauma impacts so many people and can also drive addictive processes and addictive behavior and all that. So let's just jump in. Holly, you want to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you. How did you get into this work and why are you passionate about this and all of that? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dwayne. I am. I'm really grateful to be here. So thank you for the invitation. Yeah. And so I'm going to keep this, how I got into it as short and sweet as possible. So I was a journalist for 15 years before I went into psychotherapy. Wow. And one of the roles I took on towards the end of the journalism career was teaching creative writing at a girls detention facility outside of Los Angeles. So as I was giving them writing prompts each week, I heard story after story of sexual trauma, as you can imagine. So yep. sexual abuse, sexual assault, gang rape, all kinds of things. And of course, at the time, I would be reading their work, and I really didn't have anything more to say other than I'm so sorry, and that's not okay. But that really changed the trajectory of my life. And the next fall, I went back to graduate school. So I got my master's in clinical psychology, and then just didn't really feel like I was done. So I got a PhD in somatic psychology. Wow. So really having that event and seeing that trauma firsthand and the impact like sexual trauma has yeah. on people and how it, that sexual trauma can change the direction of someone's life, being able to see that. I mean, it sounds like that really is like, I got to do something here. Yeah. Yeah. That was exactly it. And I was very clear, like uh, writing about this or helping them write about it and express themselves as a tiny little part, but not nearly enough. So in the state of California, you need to do 3,000 hours of internship to get your marriage and family therapy license. So I did most of my 3,000 hours at the Santa Barbara Rape Crisis Center. And after probably a year and a half, I realized I was getting great trauma training, like top right. notch. I love my supervisor there. But I hit this wall and it felt so profound of what comes next. So great, I can treat the trauma, but how do I help these people to have healthy sex lives, solid relationships, and really to embrace that part of themselves again? Yeah. And I I think, you know, that's interesting you say that because I, I think some of my work kind of led down the same road. I mean, you, okay, here's the trauma. We can treat the trauma, but then how do you live a life that's thriving, that feels good to you? That's a whole nother paradigm, right? That's a whole nother piece of the puzzle. So I can totally relate yeah. to that. So let's go in yeah. a little bit. Let's talk about, because I think this is going to be important, somatic psychotherapy. And for people who are out there and, and don't know what that means, can you define that? Because I think some of the questions we're going to get into is going to pull us around to that. So, Absolutely. So soma translates to body. So somatic psychotherapy is body-based or body-informed psychotherapy. So in my work day-to-day, -day, I am still a talk therapist, but very experiential. So I'm going to give my clients, my patients, a lot of homework. And every almost everything I do with them is mediated through the nervous system. So to me, the body starts with a nervous system. So I'm really constantly gauging where, where are we today and do we need to upregulate or downregulate so when I was at the Rape Crisis Center and, and hit this wall of what's next, I decided to write my dissertation on the recovery of sexual health after sexual trauma. 
And when I stepped into that research, I quickly figured out I can't study trauma if I'm not studying the body, and I can't study the body if I'm not studying sexuality. Right. So really, like the breadth of my work goes hand in hand, like the licensed marriage and family therapy, yes, but then with the informed body-based approach, yes, and then the certification in sex therapy. So I can't even imagine doing this work without those three pillars. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Our sexuality is so core to our sense of self. I mean, it's such an important part of us that I think we experience the world in many ways through our sexuality, uh, unconsciously and consciously. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, our brain is our largest sex organ, but the body for most of us has a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. And Dwayne, I'm sure you've seen this too, for trauma survivors, they can be very disassociated from their body, just almost numb and walking around just, you know, from the neck up, or they can be a little bit overly in their body when we're talking about in your language, addiction, in my language, compulsivity or out of control sexual behavior. So let's, let's jump into that. When, when someone yep. has sexual trauma, maybe, you know, maybe recent or even in, in the past or in their childhood, how does that start to manifest in someone's life? And how does it start to kind of seep in and, like I was saying earlier, ch change the direction of their life? Yeah. So I think there's two things I want to mention there. And the first is sexual shame. So most of us have some experiences of shame, but the longer I study sexual trauma, it is such that internalized experience of shame goes so deep with sexual trauma, like it gets buried. It is like, I am bad. I am broken. I am the most horrible person. Whereas other kinds of shame, whether it's academic shame or family shame, those have a little bit more chance to be externalized. With sexual shame, I feel like it goes right in so and it sticks. Right into the self, like the self gets yeah. now surrounded and engulfed in this shame. Or yeah. we relate to the self through this lens of shame. Exactly, exactly. And then the other pillar, another reason why I studied somatic psychology, so many physical manifestations of trauma. So, and it was so interesting and, you know, heal or heal thyself. As I was doing this work, I realized partly why I was drawn to it is because I am a somaticizer. So for many years, I walked through my life very body-led so my body would let me know something was wrong way before my brain caught up. And either I'm not very smart or my body knows better than I do. And it's really, it's been a process of what, 18 years now of helping my body and my mind to be on the same page because yeah, for years, my body was just like, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. And I wasn't listening. And I think with so many of the survivors that we see too, they are going to come in with all sorts of physiological issues. And a yeah. lot of times those are idiopathic. So there's no medical reason why they're getting expressed that way. So then we have to look at the psychogenic reasons. What's, what's originating from the psyche? Right. And I think what you're saying is so important because we, I think with, you know, my experience personally and professionally is like when we have sexual trauma, we disconnect from our body. Well, I mean, in a way we can, I mean, that's one of the symptoms in a way. Yeah. Because then we can't, if we're in our body, we're going to feel our our stuff, our pain, our hurt, what our shame, and we don't want to be there. So then we find tools to not be there, I guess. <laughs> I don't want to feel that. Yeah. I don't like that. And maybe that even it becomes, and I believe, it becomes unconscious. It becomes a habit in a way of a coping. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 
for some people, I think with, you know, self-pleasure, masturbation, however we want to talk about it, that's a thread back to the body, or it's a complete thread to disassociate from the body, from the feelings. Like, let's just go to the pleasure and feel this a lot. Or for other people, they're like, I cannot tolerate pleasure at all. So I'm just going to kind of cut that part of myself off. So it can go in two directions. It can either go into the compulsivity realm, where it's like, I'm using this as a a compulsive way to cope, like I'm drawn to it. Or to the other side where I'm completely sexually shut down and I, I, I avoid anything that has to do with sex a hundred percent and, or try. Mm -hmm. And then those two extremes, once again, probably aren't healthy. Exactly. Exactly. So the lens that I look through with the nervous system is rigidity on one end. We've got flexibility in the middle and then laxity on the other side. So that laxity is going to look like chaos right? The laxity is going to be the compulsivity where just kind of things feel very out of control. Where on the other side, that rigidity, everything is shut down and I'm not even going to go there because I'm just too afraid or too sad to whatever it is. Let's talk a little bit about the compulsivity side of it. And I I want to also get to the the rigid side of it, the, you know, but why was someone who has sexual trauma move over to that side of it? What might be some of the reasons that their body and their mind takes them that direction? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dwayne, this is such an important question that I think a lot of people have their hard time wrapping their head around because they think, oh my gosh, this person was raped and now she's out there having a ton of sex. That doesn't make sense at all. Why would she do that? Yeah. Right. But it actually makes all the sense in the world. And this happens so often because if she can convince herself that that rape didn't mean anything by having a lot more sex, then she thinks she's going to feel better. So she gets raped. She wants to minimize it and be like, uh, I don't know why I'm freaking out. That wasn't that bad. Um, I'm I'm sure it wasn't that bad. So I'm going to have sex with this person and hope I feel better. And then she does that and she doesn't feel any better. So I'm going to have sex with this person and hope I feel better. And it goes on and on and on until she really sits down to process the trauma. And so getting stuck in that psych, that loop. So that trauma comes up. If I try and do this, I'm trying to change my nervous system, but it doesn't work because you're not really processing the trauma. The trauma gets stuck in a loop. That's what I hear you kind of saying. Yeah, exactly. So she's trying to come up with a different outcome after every time she has sex, but she lands back in sexual shame every time because she's not really looking, you know, she's she's doing the thing, she's having the experience, but she's not looking at her feelings around that. And of course, doing that with a therapist is a great way, but I mean, um, she could process with a friend, she could process in a group, but it has to be talked about because I can guarantee there's some hook in her head that is saying, why didn't I, I should have known better. Why didn't I run and fight and scream? How could I have been so stupid? Why did I have that extra drink? All of these things that survivors say to themselves when you and I know full well, the other only reason people get raped is because there's a rapist present. There's nothing she did, nothing he did to be raped. That, right. that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And and so the the person who's who's had this experience, they go into that rumination or that that constant processing the event and what is that what is that what is the body trying to do with that thought like they're trying to fix it they're trying to 
change something there? What's what's the attempt there that's kind of I would say failing because it doesn't really actually yeah. mitigate the trauma, but it's right. it's it's momentary. What's happening there in the body? I believe that they're trying to minimize it. It's just that okay. word. So so they have the experience and then they move through their life and then things start falling apart, right? So they end up with substance abuse issues or they can't maintain a relationship or they get fired from their job. They have a ton of physical pain and they're like, what is happening? What is happening? And then so they try to have a reparative experience each time that they're compulsive around sex and they're just not getting to it because they're not looking at what actually happened. And I think you said something like really critical there, a reparative experience, like the brain needs something to repair this. And that's, I think, something you can do with the, you know, a trusted therapist or something that then actually changes the nervous system. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's because the mind is saying, this wasn't a big deal. I'm going to go have more sex to prove that that wasn't a big deal. And the body's having a fit. The body is jumping up and down and screaming and saying, Hey, this was a really big deal. Please pay attention to me. Please pay attention to me. I need help here. I am so scared. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, you know, doing this work, I, that's so much pain to be in. It's so hard to be there in that place um, and that struggle. So my my heart goes out to everyone who might be struggling in that in that realm. Yeah. And just there's help out there. Go get help, get support. We have so much, so many more resources now than we ever did. So that's just my heart yeah. saying that as we as we're talking about this drama. I have another question that's kind of coming up for me. So like you mentioned, like a rape, maybe. I'm thinking as an adult, having that traumatic experience. What about how this is manifested for maybe children? Maybe they have sexual trauma or maybe they're in a traumatic situation and they found sex as a way to cope and how that leads to like a longer term compulsivity or addiction or whatever we're going to call it, out of control sexual behavior, whatever the term we're going to use. Can you talk about that a little bit and, and, and the differences there? Yeah. Yeah. So sexual abuse is something that I work with all the time and the long-term effects are profound. So someone, you know, I have a client now that was sexually abused between the ages of nine and 11. He's now in his mid sixties. And I mean, this is still, you know, only in the last really five years or so has he been looking at these compulsive behaviors and, and figuring them out for for what they are. So the process that's happening there is especially, so with sexual abuse of a child, so if these are our first sexual experiences, they leave an imprint. At least that is my belief. And especially this client that I'm thinking about, a boy sexually abused by a man. So my client is straight. Everything about him is straight, but you can imagine what his compulsivity was in his 20s, yeah. 30s, and 40s. Guess. Totally. Right? Yeah. Had, yep. had sex with men. Yeah. Even though in- internally he identifies as straight, here's this traumatic, I think almost like what you said earlier, maybe reenactment or trying to have a corrective mm-hmm. experience or something that's going to change this moment to relieve that bodily discomfort, that that stress, that the trauma locked yeah. in the body. Absolutely. That's that's exactly it. And 
you know, he met with some other therapists who were really like, well, you must be gay. There must be a part of you that's gay. And when he found me, I was like, I told, I know you are straight and I know sleeping with men was a total, a trauma response. He doesn't want a relationship. There was nothing other than having sex, getting off, however you want to say it. It was just, please release me from this awful sensation that I'm feeling and I can't hold. It's, it's like a drug. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yep. he was given a drug between the ages of nine and 11 and, you know, the arousal non-concordance, which I know you mm-hmm. you talk about too. It felt good, even though yeah. his brain didn't want it. It felt good. So that story played out for another 40 years for him, which is just heartbreaking. It is. It is so heartbreaking to see it and to see the pain that they have to walk through until they can find someone or some help or some support that can start to change that or shift it, or they can see it from a different perspective. And like you said, start to have that corrective experience around it, which takes time because it's, yeah. it's yeah. like you said, it's so rooted in the self and the core that like to get there is, is so challenging. Um, yeah. So Dwayne, what about- I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just don't want any of your listeners. I would have been a hundred percent. Okay. If he was gay, he can be whatever he wants. Anybody can be whatever he wants. Totally. He was just telling me that he wasn't. And I believed him because he knows himself. So I just wanted to be I, clear about oh, that. You know, <laughs> yeah. Holly, I think that's, I, I think that's good that you say that too, okay. because each person has to define their sexuality and, you know, and, and figure that, that piece out for themselves, what's right for them and what's right for their, for, for who they are. And I know that's what you do. So I know that's how you're saying this. So, but totally understand that, you know, that I think that's important to, to be able to say and to, to say out loud, because we really want people to be who they are and to fully embrace their, their sexuality and how that manifests itself. And, and in a, in a, in a, you know, that's back to sexual thriving, right? Yeah. And that's what yeah. we want for everybody, all of ourselves and everybody else. So, okay. So I had another question because I'm very curious about this. I want to go to the other side of it where people become, well, I use the term sometimes sexually anorexic. I don't know if that's the greatest mm-hmm. term, but you know, they come, like you said, like very, so rigid that they turn their sexuality off because it's so fearful. And I wonder how that kind of, if someone's out there yeah. and they're, and they're on that side of the the equation, what, how that might, they, they might experience that or how would they notice yeah. that? Yeah. So sexually anorexic, that's certainly a term that is used. The other term I like, and it's interesting how this shows up is, is anhedonic or suffering from anhedonia. So just an aversion to pleasure in general. So, so someone who is shut down to sexual pleasure, you're probably going to see a lot of rigidity around what they eat, a lot of rigidity around what their house looks like, a lot of rigidity around how many people they hang out with, where they hang out, like their world, just how I describe it. It's a very small container because the smaller the container, the more rigid the container, the safer they feel. Oh, so they're getting safety this way where the other person yeah. who's in compulsivity is like trying to create this experience yeah. they're tightening down to avoid the experiences that's their way of trying to cope and how we can each like do that so differently exactly exactly and it's just pleasure just doesn't feel safe so either you know there could have been that arousal non-concordance so while they were being 
raped or assaulted or abused, they experience some sexual pleasure because they're a human being in a body. They're not a robot, but holy cow, talk about shame. Like how many people in this world carry around, oh, I was raped when I was 13, but I had, you know, I ejaculated. That must've meant I wanted it. It a hundred percent did not mean that at all. It just means you're a human being with a penis with nerve endings. Right. And that's what the body does. Right. But can you imagine then that rigidity makes a lot of sense? Like, nope, I'm just going to shut down pleasure altogether. I'm not even going to go there because that if if I ejaculate again, then I'm going to feel the shame all over. And then that has long term impacts for them, too, on their relationships, living in that rigid space. There's a lot of anxiousness around that to try and maintain that rigidity. I mean, it it leads to all all sorts of other problems that that come up for them. It does. It does. It's really hard to maintain a relationship unless you have two people who are happy not having sex, which doesn't, you know, that's not usually how, how it goes. Or this person just ends up living alone their whole life, but they're desperate for connection, but it's too scared to find it. All of these things. Another question I have too about this is I'm thinking, so when you see a person with compulsivity, right, it's more visible, right? You can see the behavior, you can see it. On the flip side, when you have someone more rigid, it's I think it's more invisible. And and do you see a difference in people getting help for either side of that? Or I'm just curious about about how you see that kind of come into your office and and be present and show up. Yeah. I think you're right. The compulsivity, usually there is going to be some external impact eventually, right? right. Some somewhere, excuse my language, shit is going to hit the fan right? Whether it's in their relationship or they're missing work or they got in trouble or something. So they're going to, they're going to seek help. And if they have, you know, if there's a lot of issues with compulsivity, they could end up with an SDI. They could end up with injuries to their genitals because they're masturbating so much. So those are some external things that person is going to be, yes, I need help. I see more on the other end of the rigidity. And in that case, it's usually a person coming to me saying, my marriage is about to fall apart because I can't have sex. Or the partner brings their partner in and says, hey, we're about to divorce because they can't have sex. Or a lot of times a person will just kind of come to it on their own and be like, I can see I've never experienced sexual health whatsoever. And I'm finally connecting the dots that it was that rape that happened 32 years ago. I never gave that any attention whatsoever, but you know what? Now in my fifties, I think that had a big impact and can we finally talk about it? Yeah. And, and being able to see that and, and, and get there. Yeah. It's so, it's, it's so heartbreaking because it's, it impacts so many people. And, you know, once again, as we were saying earlier, sexuality is such a core part of who we are as a human being that this kind of trauma just, it kind of seeps in all over the place and impacts so many areas of, of a person's life. But like you're saying, you you can reclaim pleasure and you can heal from sexual trauma, which is which is so important. So let's talk a little bit about that healing side of it. Mm-hmm. And you know, for me, my journey in in as a as a therapist and all this stuff comes through the addiction realm. You know, going into working with people in addiction and and kind of conceptualizing this through the term addiction. Like when we look at sexual compulsivity using that term. But I know that term, there's a lot of debate over what to call sex addiction, compulsive sexuality, out of control sexual behavior, 
And I just want to talk about that a little bit and, and kind of dig into that. And what are the pros and cons and, and, you know, yeah, language is important. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is, it is words inform our experience. And that's from Esther Perel, who I so know so many of us admire. Okay. So because I came up through the traditional sex therapy lens, ASECT, so we don't, we don't use the word addiction. However, right. I am going to say if people can, if more people that need help find it through the addiction channel, I am happy. I just want people to feel better. Yeah. The problem I have with it and the problem a lot of traditional sex therapists have with it is that for some clients, it's a way to pathologize bad behavior and bypass their role. So let's take Harvey Weinstein, for example. Let's take a, a many of these high-powered men who are like, sorry that I raped 50 people. I have a sex addiction. I'm going to go to this clinic for 30 days and all must be excused. Like, that's just bullshit. I'm, I'm sorry. No. Yeah, no. absolutely. I would, I would agree with you 100% on that. that you, know, you have to take accountability for your actions, no matter what you call it. Right, right. Yeah. So the model that we use, which you used all the words, compulsivity or Doug Braun Harvey's um, treating out of control sexual behavior, right. we're all getting at the same thing. I think just for me and Dwayne, I'm sure for you, it has to be through a sex positive lens. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No matter what you're going to call it, I'm, I, I think I'm really on the same page as you. Our sexuality has to come from that sex positive lens. If we, if we do it through shame, that's not healing right? That's, mm -hmm. that's just more pain and more hurt. And I think we can see in our culture, there's already so much sexual shame. We do have to be really, really careful with our languaging of what that can do and how that languaging can be co-opted to flip to a, a negative side. I totally see that. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. So we just, we don't want to pathologize sexuality and, and I'm sure you don't either because sexual health is an integral part of our overall health. We yep. want to help people make better decisions, feel better in their body, you know, awareness, understanding, behavior change, work through that trajectory to get to a place where they want to be with their own sexuality. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let them, let them find their path and their way. So let's talk about now. We kind of talked about how it like manifests itself, right? So we've got this compulsivity, we've got this rigidity, and we've got the trauma and the shame. Let's talk about how do we start to like heal that? Like, how do we reclaim our sexual pleasure to be to be a I want to say a full human being? Yeah, yeah. And this was my dissertation. So in the dissertation over ten years ago, I discovered three parameters that I walk survivors through. And then when I wrote my book, Reclaiming Pleasure in 2021, I added a, a fourth parameter, a bonus. So those parameters are control. So within control, we've got maintaining control and relinquishing control. So relinquishing control is going to be really important for those people that are rigid. Maintaining control is going to be really important for those people that are lax or compulsive. Right? right? So really playing with elements of control. And again, this is mediated by the nervous system. The second parameter is pleasure. So many people have never stopped to think about what they want, what they desire sexually. So I help my clients discover their sexual template, like what, what really turns you on and how do you feel good expressing that? The third parameter is connection. And, and this one is the hardest. 
Like, how do I be myself as a sexual being in connection with someone else? You know, what is, what does that really look like for me? It's hard. So the control is like kind of the logistics. The pleasure is kind of the fun, exciting piece. And then we get to connection. My clients are like, oh shit, you want me to actually have to go out and do this? Yes. Right. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Are you crazy? No, right. I mean, well, that if you, if you're dealing with shame, right? Shame is the emotion of disconnection. So yeah. You've got to like have that shame. You got to build that shame resilience because you're going to encounter it if you've had sexual yeah. trauma. I would imagine that's what I'm thinking. Oh, you're yeah. going to encounter shame yeah. if you have sexual trauma. You know, it's like, oh well, there's shame. Nice to see you. Right, <laughs> right, right. So how can I be in connection without the shame, like running the show? And then the fourth parameter, which is the bonus, is this idea of eroticism and fantasy co-creation, like really stepping even deeper into our sexuality to see, see what the subconscious, our psyche really desires to feel in our erotic expression. And I think that that fourth one, it sounds like that's even harder. Maybe that's my own stuff, but you know, that's even because, you know, being with fantasy, being with eroticism and letting yourself go right? You have to trust mm -hmm. yourself a little bit. You have to, you have to let go of, you know, back, I guess, back to what you're saying, control. Yeah. I would imagine that's difficult for a lot of people to do. It is. It is. And then sharing fantasies with partners. Like it's a, it's a, that's a complex step. Yeah. But for some people, especially those that have struggled with fantasy. So, you know, they're like, I should want this, but I really want this. It's an important thing to look, to look at and just trying to get aligned their mind and body. And I would love to ask this question too. How does culture impact that piece as well? Because I, I think yeah. we live in a pretty shame-based culture when it comes around yeah. sexuality and, our, and, and sexual being. And I imagine that comes into play. It, it does. It does. You know, if I'm a man, I should be dominant and confident and strong. And, you know, so you've got this guy who's dominant and confident and strong on the outside, but on the inside, he's just like, oh my gosh, all of my fantasies are about being dominated. What's wrong with me? Right, I don't, yeah. you know, so just helping him to really understand what that is. And that is about control and letting himself go and just feel free and not having to make all the decisions to keep himself safe. So just like normalizing that has so much power. Yeah, absolutely. Cause then, the, then they, you know, they can see their humanity. Like this is just, this is just what it means to be human, yeah. right? This yeah. is what it means to be alive and to go through this walk, this crazy walk of life, whatever, you know, that means to you and to us or yeah. whoever, right? It's, yeah. it's, that's part of the journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the sexuality or erotic piece of it can make it really exciting and for some people scary, but there's, there's a lot of rich information there. And can we connect that piece back to trauma resolution too? Because if our trauma informs our sexuality, how do those pieces work together? You know, our eroticism that we're discovering and our trauma and the the connection between those two pieces. I know that's a very yeah. complex question. I'm, I'm, I'm asking pretty complex questions. I mean, I know that's not, there's not yeah. an easy, totally easy answer, but I, I think people would want to know that. I think people would want to understand yeah. that a little bit. So, so here's, here's the truth of it. A lot of times, especially if the trauma happens in childhood or at a young age, it can inform some, some of the ways that we relate sexually. The key there, let's take fantasy for example. So I, I give my clients two choices. So 
they talk about their trauma. There's something in their fantasy that is a recreation of the trauma. Let's say that they mm-hmm. were strangled, right? So they were strangled during their rape. And now she she's like, oh my gosh, I have so much shame. If I really need to get myself off, I'll watch porn or I'll imagine something with, with strangulation. So with that, I would work on that for weeks and weeks and months and try to come up. Is there a way that that can be a healthy expression that she could go to sometimes that would turn her on or every time she goes there, does she just hit that wall of shame? And our work in that moment is to really redirect. So it's, it's a mindful mindfulness practice, right? Every time strangulation comes up, I'm going to say, no, thank you. I'm going to put you over here and I'm going to have another fantasy that I can go to. Or for some people join, they're like, after months of working on this, they're like, okay, I can tolerate that fantasy and it is still hot to me, but I understand why. And I can engage with it every now and then. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what you were talking about earlier about how each person has to find their way, right? Like what you're saying is like only that person is going to know what's going to work for them. And they can do that with compassionate guidance Mm -hmm. to find that. Because once again, it it might be one way for this person and then another way for this person. And that's okay to find our path and that, yeah. yeah. So that, that's very, very hopeful for a lot of people. Cause I think when people experience sexual trauma, they can feel very stuck and lost in it and yeah. that there's no way out. And what you're saying is, you know, there is, you can reclaim your pleasure and um, you, can. you can. So let's talk about that yeah. because you have a book out there and if people want this information and want, and, and I, I would imagine a lot of people are probably relating to this and, and hearing this. Tell us about your book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the book is called Reclaiming Pleasure, A Sex-Positive Guide to Moving Past Sexual Trauma and Living a Passionate Life. Um, and it's got all of these steps in here. So it walks you through shame and sexual health, understanding self-blame, and then it really moves into this healing protocol of those four parameters that we've just discussed. Plus, it has a ton of resources. If you are not a person that reads, I have Reclaiming the Course. It's an online course, 10 modules. So you can find that on my website as well. So it's just drhollyrichmond.com, drhollyrichmond.com. You can go to Instagram, drhollyrichmond. Yeah, I think that's it. Awesome. I will put all those in the show notes as well. Before we go, I would like to ask one question before we totally wrap up. And that's if someone out there is maybe struggling with sexual trauma and you could tell them one thing, what would it be? What would you want them to know? Mm, That they did it right, that they handled it the right way. And the reason I know that is because they're here and there's having these questions now and reflecting on their process. I think for so many survivors, again, they go back to why didn't I... I should have known, how could I have been so stupid? All of those things, but our body really takes care of us. So whether you froze in that moment, whether you fawned to try to get out of the situation, whatever you did, it was the right thing. And I know it's the right thing because you're here and you're asking those questions and something worse could have happened if you didn't have the reaction that you did. Oh, thank you, Holly, so much for saying that and just, and putting that out there and giving, you know, like just you're human. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Holly, for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast, just sharing your wisdom, your experience and your hope and all of that. 
Oh, Dwayne, thank you again for the invitation. It was so nice to connect with you today. All right, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Be kind to yourself as you move throughout it. And I will talk to you on the next episode. It's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.